Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I heard of this thing that can read data, even if it's encrypted. Supposedly, it might be good at protecting my privacy, but how does that work if it can read the data? Confused? Don't be. Let's help you know a little more about fully homomorphic encryption. One of the great things about encrypted data is that it protects your personal data. One of the downsides of encrypted data is it has to be decrypted if you want to do something with it, which exposes it to things like misuse, leaks, and attacks. Let's say a scientist wants to analyze a large data set of medical records to find out the frequency of conditions related to taco consumption. Access to that data might be hard to get because of regulations, or the scientist might be worried about having to be an expert data manager and preventing underlying leaks of the data. And medical privacy laws might just prohibit her from getting that data at all. But the scientist doesn't need to know who has what conditions, just some numbers. What if she could just get the calculations done without ever having to look at the underlying data? That's something called Fully Homomorphic Encryption, or FHE, promises to do. It can analyze data without knowing its contents. Now, this seemingly counterintuitive feat can be done with some complex math. For this episode, I considered heading back to school and getting my PhD in electrical engineering from some respected institution like Virginia Tech, but the time and cost seemed a little prohibitive. Thankfully, I found somebody who already did all that. Dr. Thomas Rondeau is a program manager at DARPA working with Fully Homomorphic Encryption, and has kindly agreed to sit down and help us understand FHE. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom, and a great shout-out for Virginia Tech. Appreciate that. <laughs> you bet. So let's start with the, the, the big, you know, high-end view from the top. What is FHE? Yeah, so uh, actually going back to the, uh, my time at Virginia Tech, I, I was also – I minored in English literature, so I'm a bit of a word geek. Oh, so nice. actually I want to dive into uh, where the word uh, – the name comes from. So homomorphic. It's homo for same and morphic for change. Uh, so what, what that means is uh, we have plain text uh, before we encrypt it and cipher text after we encrypt it. So the changes that you make – uh, the, the morphs that you do in the ciphertext are the same as if you would make them in the plain text. So if we can take data and multiply it by two in the ciphertext and you unencrypt that result, it'd be the same thing as if you multiplied that by two in the plain text. So it's the same change that happens uh, between the ciphertext uh, and the real text. So you're uh, able somehow to tell it to multiply by two without knowing what you're multiplying. Uh, that's correct. Yep, yep. You never have to see the original data. You just give it the instruction, mm -hmm. uh, the program to run, and, and it runs it on that encrypted data. Now, this has been a vision of cryptographers for decades. Uh, and there's been this thing, we call this fully homomorphic encryption. Previously, we 
uh, you thought about it as partially or sometimes there's somewhat homomorphic. Mm. Uh, what fully means is that you can compute any mathematical function, any computable function on the data, whereas these other schemes, partial or somewhat, usually had limits in, in as far as what kind of computations they could do or how far into a computation you could take this. So, for instance, I think most of your audience will uh, have some basic understanding of deep neural networks. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in that case, you could only go so far, so many layers into that neural network before you basically run out of out of compute space, uh, and that's a that's a bad term for it if you're into this, but but hopefully people understand that, that you're idea, just going to yeah. run out of the time, yeah. Yeah, so if you see homomorphic uh, encryption out there without the F uh, or with these other words, uh, it, it just means, uh, in general, uh, the previous versions couldn't do it all, but FHE yeah. promises to be able to do it all. What kind, I mean, I have my crazy taco example there at the top, but what, what kinds of problems could FHE really solve? Yeah, so the taco one's not a bad example, although uh, we could get into some of the other approaches to sometimes people call it data oblivious computation or just kind of privacy-protecting computation. There's these things called uh, differential privacy, which I think you might have had a, uh, a talk on, one of these uh, podcasts on before, if I recall. We've, we've certainly um, discussed Apple's approach to it and Google's approach yeah. to it on, on Daily Tech News Show a couple yeah, times. Yeah, there you go. So that one is where if you have enough data and you can make statistical inferences, you know, you can kind of put a little bit of noise in that data to help remove specific knowledge of, of the individuals. So that one, you know, if you're going to do like kind of broad uh, strokes of, of health information or something like that across a large population, you know, maybe differential privacy is okay. And it's actually, frankly, uh, computationally easier than FHE. Where FHE would is, is a little bit better is more for targeted information extraction. So, for instance, let's take the genetic code. You know, we're all getting our, our DNA sequenced. Well, that's awesome if we can start tying that back to risks of cancer or, you know, how you're going to behave, uh, your body behaves to certain medicines or allergies. But obviously, it's a concern to have that data just sitting out there for anybody to see and, and possibly abuse. You know, FHE would allow you to keep that keep control of that data. Um, and again, it's a thing I think you talk about a lot, Tom, which is privacy is one thing, but really what we want is control of our data. Mm -hmm. And that's what FHE uh, helps us uh, understand better is, is how to control that, where we get to keep the keys, we get to keep the knowledge of that. The analytics could be done under FHE, but we get to control that in a lot more specific, specified manner. From a law enforcement perspective, well, let's just say me personally, I'm not uh, a big fan of dragnets uh, mm -hmm. or anything that goes, you know, as blanket analysis of especially U.S. persons' privacy. We could be a lot more specific and, and have a lot better protocols for accessing information by allowing the analytics to happen. Well, the data is encrypted, but only gives us answers of the things that we're specifically looking for. So those are so law enforcement, mm -hmm. financial crimes, healthcare data. Those are the things that are really on the top of people's minds today's with today's FHE implementations. So if, if I've got this right, uh, law enforcement could look at a large swath of data for something uh, that they know they want to find, and they would only be told if it was there. They wouldn't have to get all the data and the access to all the data. Is that about right that's correct yeah yep. Yep, exactly. uh, and then and like you say with control i i might be more comfortable letting companies analyze my data if i know that it's still encrypted and they that's right. can't know anything else about me except the thing that they're looking for yep yep exactly uh and so that actually goes into i know you mentioned last week on your sh on the daily tech news show my uh darpa program called deprive mm -hmm. uh 
I think you're the first person that ever just got the joke of the name immediately. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I'm yeah. happy to hear that. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're trying to de- uh, deprive the yeah. bad guys from ever seeing or manipulating our data. Uh, going more into the why we called it that, so data protection in virtual environments. It's that virtual environments that I, I care about mm. in this in, in, for this particular question, which is the cloud is made up of a bunch of virtual machines. And I love the joke that the cloud is just someone else's computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you trust the machine that you're operating or you're, you're computing your analytics or your data is being stored on? You think about 5G, and when you dive into 5G, it's more than just a lot of you know broadband data. It's about virtual networks. So these virtual environments that we're, pa- we're going to collect more data, we're going to process more data, we're going to store it. How do you do that on, on all these untrusted machines? Uh, so that's where we started to really get interested in how do, we, how do we deprive people from exploiting these virtual environments to protect our data. So we've talked a lot about what it can do. Uh, what are the things that it can't do? Uh, so one of the biggest challenges with FHE is the computational complexity. So this just means that, and, and I think we can dive into this more uh, in a second, but the the top level is if you have a computation you do on your plain text, if you're going to multiply a number by another number, that's one thing. To do that same computation in the fully homomorphic encryption space is a million times more complicated. It's literally 10 to, 10 to the 6 times more computationally intensive. That limits you in what you can really conceive of doing and computing today. Now, that's not really a limitation of FHE as a concept. It's a limitation of the, our ability to compute on it uh, right now. So that's one of the things that, that you're gonna, we, we need to, to challenge ourselves with, which is what's the right application where this six orders of magnitude problem is still worth the time? And things like protecting our health information or financial crime analysis, which would take uh, an individual analyst or, or agent months to to do by hand, she can now run it under FHE, and maybe it'll take weeks, but it's still better than months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the limitations. Um, you know, I already mentioned differential privacy as something that you might want to do for when you have a statistically significant size population. You can you can help protect people's privacies and individual information uh, through that. Um, there's other things called like trusted uh, execution environments. Um, this would be like Intel's SGX or ARM's Trust Zone. That gives you a little enclave on your processor where the data can go in encrypted, gets decrypted internally, computed on, and then re-encrypted before it comes out. That's a way to, to help with this problem. But unfortunately, they're not really... They're just not mathematically rigorous enough. There's no actual proof that they're that, that these things will protect your data. So um, FHE is one of those things that uh, has the mathematical rigor. It just has this massive compute overhead uh, to compute. Now, I do want to mention here, because if there are other people familiar with this space here, uh, I've not forgotten about multi-party computation. MPC is almost a, uh, a sister to FHE in some ways, where multi-party computation allows you to compute pieces of data across multiple different machines. It's another way of obscuring the computation and protecting individual bits. You'd have to collect everything to be able to, to make uh, an understanding of the original data. FHE and MPC have that mathematical rigor, but FHE has this computationally heavy problem, MPC has this really bandwidth-heavy problem and incurs large latencies. So what you got to figure out is what's the time requirement 
of your computation? What are the limitations of your resources? Is it bandwidth? Is it is it computation? Uh, and then try to figure out how to mix these different types of techniques together in order to to, to produce something that is is really usable and workable for us. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I appreciate you uh, throwing something out. Uh, to the folks who we, we, I do this all the time on know a little more who know more than all of the other people in the audience. And I'm like, look, I know we're oversimplifying or maybe we're not addressing this. So I, I appreciate you doing that. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that, I, I know this is one of those questions that you can't fully answer without really explaining all the math. But is there a way for people to understand how this can be done? How is it possible for a computation to be run and be accurate without seeing the numbers without seeing the actual data that's underneath i think i can i'm gonna try at least okay good uh it's a lot easier if you can see me waving my hands in the air <laughs> okay so everyone imagine waving hands yeah. that'll help yeah actually the first thing what you want to do is imagine uh you got a piece of paper and you draw a grid so mm-hmm. three dots in th- uh, each in three rows so you got nine dots on a paper and just this in a matrix Okay, that's what what can also be called a lattice. Mm-hmm. And so there's this other encryption technique called lattice cryptography, and that's what we're going to describe here because lattice is the fundamental basis of homomorphic encryption. All right, so you've got these nine dots on a piece of paper. How do you, how would you mathematically describe that lattice? You can do it by having linear functions. So you can have a function that describes how to go from one dot on the paper to the the most adjacent dot to its right. So okay. just a horizontal line. That's one function. You got another function that draws a diagonal line from one row up and to the right to the next, you know, next row and next column. Uh, that's your second function. Those are what are called basis functions, and you can use those to recreate your lattice. And actually, you can use them to create arbitrarily large lattices. All right. Now, that first basis function is a zero. The second one is a one. Now what you do is you take your bit you know, one or a zero, you place that in that lattice. So now just imagine on that piece of paper, you just arbitrarily put a dot down. And it doesn't have to be on one of those lattice points. It can be anywhere in that space. And then to decrypt that data, you want to figure out which basis function am I closest to. So calculate the Euclidean distance in, the, in those two dimensions. And the, if you're closer to the first basis function, the horizontal line, We'll label that. I think I called that a zero. Mm-hmm. And if you if you're closer to the diagonal line, you're a one. So that's how you encrypt that data by putting it into this arbitrary lattice space with this this basis function. Now those basis functions are also your key. So only you know what those functions are. And a lattice can have many different functions that describe it, but you only know the one that you're looking for. And then what you have to do is if you don't know those you got to exhaust over all possible basis functions, and then you've got to exhaust over all possible Euclidean distance calculations. Which so the is, encryption is happening because I know that the horizontal line and the diagonal line are the important ones, but somebody trying to crap the encryption has every possible line you could possibly draw within the lattice. Exactly. Okay, good. Now, that's, that's a pretty simple lattice, my two-dimensional on a sure. piece of paper. Real lattices are millions of points over tens of thousands of dimensions. So try to think of Dolly creating a hyper, his hypercube over 10,000 yeah, yeah, dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> so that becomes an intractably hard problem. 
it's actually what's known in the math world, and I, I think some of your the math geeks listening to your show are going to appreciate this. That's what's known as an NP hard problem. And what's fun about that is we know, at least as far as we understand, quantum computers are bad at solving those problems too. So this is the basis of post-quantum computer cryptography Got as it. well. Yeah, that's good to know. So that's a yeah, that's a pretty cool kind of subset of of this problem space. Okay, now going back to our two dimensions. I've got this dot on the piece of paper, and it maps to, to one of our basis functions. Now, if I want to multiply that dot by another number, by two, the computation in the lattice space will move that dot around, but where it places it next will still have the correct relationship to those basis functions. So that when I map it back, that multiplied by two creates the same answer as if I had done it on just the original bits. So it's it's a relative situation. You don't know where the dot is, but you can tell it moved two spaces. Is that right? Ish. That's right enough. Yeah, uh-huh. for the, for yeah, the yeah. visual exper- experiment yeah, yeah. that we're doing here. Yeah, that yep. gives you the. That's not how it works, but that gives you the concept of how it works. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So you're moving in the space, and, and and the relationship in that in that lattice space is still uh, still has equivalence. Right. Now, a little bit of a tricky nuance here is that that what happens is. We put that into the lattice space originally with a little bit of noise on it. And so you have this probability density of of where it exists on the lattice. As we move that point to another piece in the lattice, we increase the noise variance. Mm -hmm. And so the, the understanding gets a little bit noisier and a little bit noisier. And eventually you run out of signal to noise. So the more times you do these operations, the more your noise your uncertainty grows. If it grows too much, then you can't compute it back to one of the original basis functions and you can't extract the, the, uh, the data. That's where some of the partially homomorphic uh, or somewhat homomorphic standards have stopped is because it gets too noisy. We can't go any further. We've just got to back out and pull it out of the, the lattice. Uh, does that make sense at this point? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, if it wasn't making sense to anybody listening, the idea that you can just kind of know the relative movement of the data and be able to come up with something that is computationally significant. I think that that at least should make sense. And the yeah. fact that because you're you're sort of estimating, you don't know the actual position, means that the more you do, the more likely you might start to range into an error and get kind of fuzzy. Exactly. So the fuzziness will jump over and say you're actually closer to the other basis function that you're mm-hmm. not. That would be an error. And yeah, then you yeah. lose your, your data. Now, that's a really important concept for fully homomorphic. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to give credit to, to the guy who broke through with this idea of how to fix that problem. So Craig Gentry was a mathematician. He worked at IBM. And his PhD thesis was on how to solve this problem of the noise growth. And that was only in 2009. So if this stuff doesn't make any sense, it's because it's literally 12 years old. I mean, (laughs) we're still, we're all, yeah, we're all trying to, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're all trying to get our heads around this basically. And so there's been a lot of good work to to do that over the last 12 years, but we're still, still trying to get there. And I think we're still trying to be able to make the metaphor uh, and the description uh, clear enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's getting good. One concern uh, that people have is, well, okay, I know that when anonymized data is out there, sometimes you can look at it and sort of figure out who it was anyway based on the data you have. And is there 
a, a, what is the chance that that could happen with fully homomorphic encryption? Is, is it leaky in any way? Yeah, it's a really good question and, and a really hard one. And, and because it's only a 12-year-old concept mm-hmm. and because it's a million times more expensive to compute, uh, it hasn't really been beaten around fully to, to really understand what we would call the level of security. Uh, you know, every security or every encryption technique out there, like AES, RSA, you know, all, all you know, Blowfish, Twofish, all of these other encryption schemes, we all know that they can be brute force attacked. You know, you just have to exhaust enough uh, right. all through all possible keys and you can decrypt it. Uh, so FHE also has some level of security, some knowledge of how uh, of how long it would take somebody to extract the the raw data uh, to be able to, to pull it back. Um, it's not as well understood as it is in, say, AES, the advanced encryption standard, to know exactly what that means right now. And that's actually one of the promises of this, this deprived program that I'm running, is if we can make those compute times so much uh, faster, uh, a lot of research can be accelerated as well as actual applications to better understand this. So what if you don't crack the encryption and you're just doing computations? Can you figure out yeah. something that way? Yeah, that's that's really the question. That, that was definitely the, the, the next piece of this puzzle. Mm-hmm. It is possible. How possible is more based on the protocols that we would wrap around the FHE execution. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, like there's a point where maybe you could ask it enough questions, you know, uh, how many, how many uh, data sets in here have uh, brown eyes? How mm-hmm. many of them also have brown hair? You know, maybe there's a way to, to continue, you know, it's, it's a 20 questions problem and maybe right. you can neck it down that way. Um, there's thoughts on this, uh, but then there are also thoughts on how to prevent it again, just by, by putting the proper protocols around it. From a mathematics perspective, uh, we can protect it. From an implementation perspective, that's usually where encryption schemes fall apart is the implementation. So we're, again, hoping to engage the, the, the right people as part of the, uh, our DARPA program. Uh, so we're talking with you know, the um, NIST, um, National Institute for Standards and, and Technology, but we're also going to work with the National Security Agency, the NSA, and they are the real cryptanalysis experts, right? They're going to be the ones that are going to help us understand what the what the left and right bounds of of these implementations of the math is going to be. You know, DARPA. That's not our our role. Is not a cryptanalysis. Uh, it's not our expertise. Right, right. It's not what we do. So, so uh, th- there are these really interesting questions, but fundamentally, the concept is not meant to enable that by default. It may be a side effect for, of implementation, not a consequence of the, the process itself. Would it be fair to say that it would, at this point it seems like it would be difficult to do, if not necessarily impossible, but take some effort? I think yeah, it would take some effort, and I think done with just the the uh, a mediocre amount of uh, attention paid to it, you could implement schemes that are uh, made this difficult. And let me also uh, say one more thing about the how the technology work, or how the math uh, concept works. It's a public-private key type of encryption. Mm-hmm. So you would we would encrypt the data with the public key. All the computations are done with the public key, but to get the data back or even to get the answers back from the cipher space, you still need the secret key. So you still own the right to unencrypt that answer. So again, this whole idea of asking enough questions of it, you could ask as many questions as you want through the public key crypto space. Nobody is allowed to decrypt it except for the person who owns the secret key. 
So if I'm doing computation on your data set, I can only even see the answers to my computations if you let me? Yep. That's good to know. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, Tom, this has been fantastic. I definitely understand FHE uh, more uh, than I did before, and, and I hope this helps everyone else out there understand it more as well. If folks want to find out more about this, what you're doing at DARPA, uh, anything that you want to let them know about, where should they go? Yeah, so uh, DARPA.mil is our, uh, our our home website. Uh, you can find more about the programs that I run, uh, which is in the space, mostly in the space of wireless and, and software-defined radio, uh, also new processor architecture. So I, I kind of have a pretty broad uh, broad bandwidth here of uh, stuff that I'm doing. Uh, but you can find out about those uh, programs, uh, some of the public stuff that we have out there. Uh, you can always look at uh, how to work with DARPA uh, on our website uh, as well. Uh, there's information about how to uh, get in touch with us and, and just what programs we're running. Uh, and then, uh, you know, just give me a second here to brag about the, the Deprive program itself uh, just kicked off this year, a couple weeks ago, which is, uh, when it made it onto the to DTNS. The four performers, as we call them, the the folks that we've contracted to help us do the work include Intel, uh, Duality, which is an expert in FHE, Galois, which is a longtime expert in cryptography, and SRI uh, out of California, uh, also has a lot of uh, you know scientific and, and math uh, background experience. Great performer base for what we're trying to do here. This is an, uh, an open program. Uh, we expect them to publish and we expect them to, uh, uh, to be part of the, the, the conversation in the world through the homomorphic standardization bodies, uh, through other uh, encryption and crypto uh, standardization bodies to, to make sure that this technology is available, uh, becomes usable, becomes part of future standards so that we can all benefit from it. Tom, that's great. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time with chatting with us today. I really appreciate it. This is a, it's great to get the, the word out there about what we're doing and, and try to make this uh, a thing for everybody. And folks, I hope this helps you know a little more about fully homomorphic encryption. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.